Welcome to The Paradigm Concept, hosted by myself, Dr. David Rollis, CEO of Paradigm Oral Health. The Paradigm Concept will feature leaders and innovators in the healthcare industry, in particular dentistry, to help you find new, efficient, and innovative ways to build a world-class practice and deliver better patient care. At Paradigm Oral Health, we're all about shaping the future of our specialty, with a focus on putting the needs of the patient first. Learn more and subscribe today at ParadigmOralHealth.com. Hi, this is David Rollins, CEO of Paradigm Oral Health. Today, I'm joined again by my good friend, Dr. Mike Walker, who's been on the show before. Mike's come up with the idea that he would lead the podcast today and interview me and get my perspective on things. So the history of this show has been around learning from people that have had success in various businesses. So I'm not sure that I'll be the best person to interview here, but I can try my best. So we'll let Dr. Walker take it away. Awesome. Thanks, David. And thanks for having me back on the podcast. This has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts. I always am excited to see new episodes come out. And when I was listening to one of the most recent episodes, I just had this idea that it'd be really great to get your perspective on things and sort of hard to have a complete paradigm concept podcast without knowing what your history is and hearing more about your story and getting your perspective on things. So I'm excited to kind of turn the tables today and appreciate the opportunity to be a guest host on the Paradigm Concept. So always excited to talk to you and to hear your contagious energy and vision for not just for Paradigm, but for all of oral surgery. So I'm excited to be with you again today. But I thought we could start off similarly to what you normally do and just hear about your early years, your childhood, the influence that your parents and your growing up had on where you are now, including, I know we've talked before about your dad being a general contractor and just wondering a little bit about your background and life before oral surgery and how that shaped into who you are today. Yeah, thanks, Mike. This will be a lot of fun. I like that question a lot. I, I feel like my upbringing has been so important to what I've ended up developing and the career choices I've taken. So I'm from Nebraska. I was born in a small town in central Nebraska. My parents had a Burger King, so I spent a year or so crawling around eating French fries off the floor, allegedly. So hopefully that resulted in a good immune system or something. But after a year or two in Hastings, Nebraska, my family moved to Lincoln, Nebraska, which is, for those of you who don't know, Nebraska, there's like kind of Lincoln and Omaha on the east side of the state, and that's kind of where most of the population is, and the rest is extremely rural. My father was became a police officer at that time, and my mom was a teacher. And after somewhere probably around age, I think, seven, my parents started a construction business, a general contracting, building homes. This had been an area that my dad had always had a lot of interest in, and that was kind of impactful to me, just being around a startup type of business at the time. And at an early age, I guess I sort of got the sense that you had to try really, really hard to have a successful business and had to be relentless on serving your customers. I can remember all hours of the day, my parents going into meetings with someone they were building a house for, or oftentimes at night or visiting construction sites. All the while, my dad continued to be a police officer. I think he liked the stability of an income. And, and you all, he started this new endeavor. It turns out he ended up doing both for like 15 years, even though he was probably doing pretty well for a while in the construction business. I think he was always paranoid of failure and it's nice to have that nice something to fall back on. So I think that's where a lot of like paranoia comes is we can never really count on tomorrow, I guess. I guess I sort of got the sense at a young age that 
you never really knew how things would turn out. You know, construction's pretty cyclical and kind of just grateful to have the business in front of you. That I think has really influenced the way I've thought about even developing our practice. And then as it's, you know, obviously grown, I've been so grateful to have patients and referring doctors. I always feel like it could go away at any time. And we have to try harder and harder and harder. And it's probably not the healthiest environment or sort of mindset to have, but I think it has resulted in a lot of good things for our practice. And then I think the other important part about that is construction is just a pretty hard job. And I'm sure my dad would probably disagree and say I probably could have worked harder, but I definitely felt a lot of pressure to help out. And I was never allowed to do the skilled labor. It was more like the construction cleanup. I didn't really have a strong affinity for wanting to go into that part of the business, but I did always enjoy the AutoCAD type programs, the drawing house plans and things. So I would spend a lot of time watching him draw on those. And then I would like draw my own houses just for fun and things. So I thought I would go into that business. But as I got into college, my dad said, you know, he sort of always discouraged me from it. He thought that it should go into something probably more predictable. I was pretty dead set. That's what I wanted to do. But he finally said to me, like, listen, just go to school. No one's probably going to really trust you much with any kind of big construction project till you're in your 30s anyway. So why don't you just keep going to school? And if it turns out that that wasn't a good thing for you, then you can always come back and do this. That kind of made sense to me. That's the track I ended up taking. So I think, you know, out of my childhood and, and upbringing, I really just got, I think, a really strong work ethic instilled because there's so much about life that you can't control, how smart you are or, or you know, how lucky you get and things, but you can control how hard you work. And it just feels like the harder you work, the luckier you tend to get. And I'm super close to my parents and my brother to this day, and they all live down the street from us, have had a pretty nice I guess, upbringing in life and pretty close family. I always love to hear that story and love the shared background. As we've talked before, my dad was a general contractor and a cabinet maker when I was growing up too. So my perspective was how incredibly hard my dad worked as well. And certainly see that in your upbringing and how your work ethic is today. You're one of the hardest workers I've ever met in my life. I don't usually have a hard time keeping up with a lot of people. <laughs> I'm keeping up with these. <laughs> When I send you an email at three in the morning and you respond immediately, I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I think we probably had this, you know, very similar upbringing, similar types of businesses we were around. I think you definitely get the sense of, well, I could just do that. We could go clean up the house ourselves today, or we could go, I don't know, do the grading ourselves or whatever. And there's no reason I've got some time. Otherwise, I'm just going to do something else so I could just work harder and you know, result in a little bit more success. And that's I guess something as our business has grown, I've you know had to try to learn. I could just try to do everything all the time, but that doesn't work really well from a, a scalable perspective. Culturally, I think it's a great thing to have people think about it that way. I love what you just suggested too, is to be able to look at a problem, you know, or look at a plan like a CAD CAM plan, and and just see a path forward to accomplishing whatever it is that you want to do. You know, I think that's been one of the greatest gifts from my father growing up was just the willingness to try something and to figure out how it works and how to make it into what you want it to be. It's so great to be able to design something and take it to fruition from nothing. That's, you know, a little bit what we've done with Paradigm. If you've got the vision, you can start the design and, you know, we're sort of perfectly designed for the results we get. I suppose oral surgery and construction are about as opposite as you could be. Well, maybe not. We use lots of screws and saws and things, but pretty different businesses. But I think there's a lot of similarities there in terms of 
designing something, building it, just doing it. I think that's something a lot of people don't do is just do it. We could actually build this. It would probably work really well. What's the rest of the story from there then? So you went to college, your dad told you, go to college, get an education. Where in there did you decide that dentistry was the option? And how did you get from dentistry then to oral surgery from there to the Mayo Clinic? And what did the Mayo Clinic do for your perspective on patient care and where you are today? So I guess another important part of my upbringing was my grandfather had a dental laboratory and it was at the time kind of a larger dental laboratory. I think it had about 35 lab technicians and he was president of the National Dental Lab Association at one point. So I worked there a little bit as well and spent a ton of time around that environment. I didn't really get to learn to be a great lab tech. I would do more like investing for casting and things, not super glamorous work, but I got to be around a lot of lab technicians and things. My perception of dentistry wasn't super awesome from that experience. I knew it was a good business and things, but that at least gave me some familiarity with dentistry. I didn't think I would ever go into dentistry from that, but I knew a little bit about dentistry and started college as a finance major or started as a biomedical engineer and realized I didn't really like the programming and things. I wish I had stuck with it, actually. I think it would have been great. Then became a finance major, was you know liking that pretty well. And I had dinner one night in my freshman year with my neighbor who was an orthodontist. He had described what his job was like and how great it was. And I thought that does sound like a pretty nice job. And, you know, I was able to shadow him and things. And my brother, who's a few years younger than me, was friends with his son. And my brother had already decided this is an awesome job as an orthodontist. So I thought, well, I might as well do that. Went to dental school then suddenly became a much better student after my freshman year, realizing that there were some admission standards and things. Went to dental school, realized that I didn't really like orthodontics that much at all, and kind of had an affinity for physiology, pathophysiology, and then spending time in the oral surgery clinic, thought that was just amazing, removing impacted teeth and jaw surgeries and all of that. And at the University of Nebraska, there's not an oral surgery program in the dental school. That's in Omaha, the dental schools in Lincoln. So we got to do a nice amount of surgery. So I just loved that. Being from Nebraska, it's a lot of people that travel to the Mayo Clinic from here because it's only about five hours away. And it always heard it was just this amazing place. My family would go there for healthcare and things. So as I started looking at oral surgery programs, I was secretly hoping I would get in there. I ended up getting accepted there, and that was probably the biggest privilege of my life to get to go there. It's such a unique place. It's a town of just over 100,000 people, but almost, I think there's 30,000 employees at the clinic, like something like 10,000 physicians. So it's a, just an incredibly unique environment where really all you can do is work because there's really nothing else to do in Rochester. In the land of 10,000 lakes, it's like the one county with no lake. It's got to be one of the coolest places on earth, but they've got all these tunnels so you can never have to go outside, (laughs) which is maybe good or bad. But just being around so many people that were just the absolute top of their profession was amazing. The medical school training there was really unique because it was a class of like 40 people, people from all over the place, like just extremely eclectic backgrounds and brilliant people because it's such a small school and there's 10,000 doctors, it's a really coveted thing to get to be an instructor in the med school. So probably unlike a lot of situations, it was not a burden to teach a class, but you had people like fighting to teach these classes and they would be the best cardiologist in the world or whatever, or neurosurgeon, quite literally, or at least one of the most recognized. So that was just amazing to get to learn from 
all of those people. And then all the while seeing the way care is delivered in this really organized way. It's like really bespoke care, but in this huge health system with multiple hospitals and clinics and outpatient settings and very premier facilities as well. So just the way they curated this whole experience had been developed over 100 years and it all starting with the Mayo brothers. I don't know if it's true, but I've heard that a physician will always be the CEO of the Mayo Clinic. And that's, you know, I think how it's always been. So a very patient-centric focus. The motto was the needs of the patient come first. It's like literally written on walls all over the place and you hear about it all the time, but it really seems to hold true. So it's just seeing how they would deliver so much care in a, you know, efficient way and still have this elite reputation. I thought that was amazing. So I thought about staying there. One of the very senior surgeons, Dr. Keller, was from Nebraska. So we had a connection there and he was going to retire and he had asked me to stay. That was like one of the most challenging decisions. I just went back and forth and it was excruciating. But at the end of the day, I really wanted to start my own practice and be back closer to family. So ended up moving back to Nebraska in 2010 and started a solo practice here in Lincoln. Well, it's clear from the way that you practice today, the impact that the Mayo Clinic had on your life and on the way that you practice oral surgery and the way that you lead the company as well. From there, then you started your own practice in Lincoln and then tie that into Paradigm Forest. How did Paradigm begin from that practice in Lincoln and what's the story from there, from its beginning until what Paradigm is today? I remember I saved all my vacation time, uh, my chief year, so I could like start the practice a couple weeks early. So started the practice two weeks early. My wife was in sales and marketing. She worked with Marriott in Rochester, so she got some really great experience and great training kind of from a business perspective. We started building the practice, the facility, like the start of my chief year. My family obviously helped me with that. And then my wife moved back a bit early and began, you know, hiring and things and getting the pieces in place. Katie, who you obviously know, I guess we just started collecting like great talent really early on. So I remember like the day we were before we were supposed to open, we realized we were getting busy and we were scheduling appointments and didn't really anticipate we'd be that busy. We realized like, okay, we've got to get some more help. So we had had an ad out for a dental assistant and I got this amazing resume. I was wondering why this person was not in dental school or something else. It ended up that that resume was from Steve Weimer, who is now a surgeon. So Steve became my first dental assistant or one of my first two dental assistants. And so I ended up hiring him, interviewed him the day before we were to open and kind of a funny story. When I was talking to him on the phone, I was like, wow, this guy is like really impressive. And he explained how he was planning to go to dental school. He hadn't gotten in the year before, but he was reapplying. His resume was great. So I was like, there must be something wrong with him. Like if he didn't get in, it was on a Sunday afternoon. And I said, like, you want to meet at the practice? And he was all excited. He was like, yeah, I'll be right there. And then he called me back five minutes later. And it's like, I just got married two weeks ago. And I told my wife that we were going to go on a walk in the park. <laughs> and I was like, that's kind of lame. So he's like, so can we do it another time? And I was like, yeah, sure, we'll do it another time. But I was frantically in need of somebody. So he was going to come in later that week. And then he called back five minutes later and said, you know what, I rescheduled that walk with my wife, I'll be right there. And I think that was not to be insensitive. It's important for him to do the walk, obviously, as a newlywed. But that's sort of like emblematic of the next 14 years I've had with Steve as he just always tries harder and does more. So I ended up meeting him. 
he wasn't a dental assistant, but I was like, this is a smart person. I'm sure there's a lot of things we're going to need to learn that I won't have time to do. So I'm just going to hire him. So at one point, I even had him reading books and creating synopsises for me on like business topics and things that first year. About two weeks later, maybe a month later, we were getting really busy at the front desk. And I said, Steve, we should hire someone else. And he said, well, my wife's graduated with a business administration degree. She still hasn't found a job. And I was like, well, we probably can't pay her a whole lot, but we'd love to hire her. She came in, was awesome. I think we paid her $10 an hour or something crazy. Then we spent the next 18 months, every minute of the day doing things where, you know, they'd come over to our house at night and we'd work on whatever it was for the next day or the next initiative that we were trying to implement in the practice. So that's kind of a long story about how we got started. But I think it was really important because Steve and Brittany have become so important to practice and Katie and like all the, you know, Natalie, all the talent that we've managed to keep and hopefully contribute to their development over the years. So that was kind of like the first couple of years of the practice. And then I had a friend from dental school, Dr. Cleverly, who had also gone to oral surgery. So I convinced him to come back to join us because we were getting super busy. So he joined us about the end of the second year. And Dr. Reek, Kevin Reek, who had been my mentor at Mayo, I'd been trying to convince him for years and kind of a funny backstory there, not to digress, but I think it's a kind of an interesting story. Going back to Mayo, it's a pretty formal place. Like you have to wear suits every day. You can't be outside of the hospital without a suit on. I, I heard not too many years ago, residents couldn't even ride in elevators with attendings. It's a pretty formal place. At the end of my fourth year, Dr. Reek, who he was a pretty intimidating person, extremely serious, amazing surgeon, had asked me to go to lunch with him. And I was like, never have I gone to lunch with an attending. And we were going to go like off site to some restaurant. And I was like, I'm like sure to get fired here. <laughs> so we sit down and then he tells me like, hey, you know what? I'd like to go into private practice at some point, And I know that you're probably going to start a practice. And it seems like you might know something about business. I'd like to join you. So Kevin and I have been planning this since my fourth year of residency. When I left, the timing just kind of didn't work out from you know family perspective and everything. But two years later, after I started the practice, it did and began to recruit him. And then he joined me at the end of the third year. And then we sort of just kept growing throughout Nebraska, into Omaha, and then eventually into, you know, just over the river into Iowa, and then had a unique opportunity with Dr. McCabe, who had been a part of our practice, and he needed to move to Minnesota for family reasons, but said, you know, he loved the practice, didn't want to leave the practice. Could we open a practice there? So we did that. And every time we opened a practice, it seemed to do better than the previous one. Really enjoyed doing that, kind of going back to building things. It was just a really fun experience to see things perform and to see new doctors join our group and to see them do really well. And it was just really, really gratifying. I always thought about it like Mayo, that it was a brand, that no one comes here to see a particular doctor necessarily. They come here because it's a great place. And that's kind of what we had captured is it didn't matter where we opened a practice, it would do great. And it wasn't about necessarily an individual. It was about the way we did things, which we had from the facility design all the way to the person going out recovery. It was very deliberate, the experience that the people had that I was always pretty maniacal about. So we were developing a pretty nice process, I guess, as we opened more and more practices and got comfortable with that and operating remotely a little bit as well. A little bit out of sequence, but along the way in 2017, I had developed a referral communication platform called Loop that was initially just sort of meant to meet the needs of our referrals because I always thought we think we're really good at oral surgery and we'd like to be the providers for our referrals and have them not make the decision to just go ahead and try to do it themselves. 
But I was thinking about it from their perspective. Like when we place an implant and a person, if they show up in their office and they don't really know what was done, that would be really embarrassing and probably make them look foolish. And they might think maybe it's just better if I just start doing this stuff myself. So I wanted to create an experience where it, it was just as good from a communication perspective as if it was done in their office and maybe even better. Maybe we would feed them more information. So that was kind of the premise behind Loop. And I knew that there was, for every oral surgeon, there's 50 or 100 dentists that probably refer to them. So you can get a pretty viral network pretty quickly. And so developed that. We started using it and then testing it in other places. And it was going really well and started to realize, I don't know that I can develop a huge sales force and run a small tech company on the side probably need a partner for this. So end of 2017, Strauman acquired that. And I got to spend a couple of years working with Guillaume Danielo, who's the CEO of Strauman, to further commercialize that product. Mayo was obviously a really impactful thing. That was a really impactful experience just to see how a company like that has infrastructure and processes and discipline and things. So that was kind of impactful too. And I also got to just see a lot of other practices through that endeavor, people that were looking at using Loop and seeing how they would implement things. And I realized we had something pretty special and that if we became more intentional in what we did, rather than just kind of waiting for opportunities to come along, that we probably had something that could be of value to more patients and to doctors. And so that's when we, in 2018, began developing Paradigm and really kind of changed our corporate structure around or our business structure such that we were investing more of our income back into the business to open new locations, invest in technology, recruit new doctors. As we started to do that, I had met a lot of different surgeons around the country. And as I introduced them to what we were doing, they became interested in being a part of it. And I realized that we could start to do mergers. You know, initially, I thought we would just grow in an organic fashion through new practices, de novo practices, which is kind of my core. I love building things, but realized if we could merge with a practice that was best in class in their market, we could then grow around them. And that was what we did initially in Colorado with Dr. Tom Stone. And then a couple months later in, in Kansas City with Brent Newby. And then it kind of went from there, Knoxville, Nashville, Boston, Atlanta, so on and so forth. Practices kept joining us and we kept growing around them and we kept growing with a really nice blend of organic growth, really probably absolute best in class organic growth in terms of dentistry and really strong acquisitive growth. In tandem, Capital had made an investment back in 2019 that provided us the capital we needed and they were great to work with. And then start of 2021, we realized, you know, we were kind of outgrowing our capital needs and would soon need a larger investor. And that's when I got to meet the folks at BlackRock. They spent probably from somewhere near the start of 2021 to, uh, I guess, around October 22. And then they made an investment in, in Paradigm. And that was an amazing process just to kind of learn more about them and meet the leaders in their organization. And it was just kind of surreal to go from like small town Nebraska to meeting with the president of BlackRock in you know, a boardroom in New York. We were much smaller than their typical type of investments that they directly invest in. But they say that their fund invests in market-defining companies, and they thought that we were a market-defining company, which I'm really proud of. So that was an amazing partnership to really bring on a partner that manages $10 trillion and has an unbelievable reputation and credibility, and I think just launched us dramatically over the past 
13, 14 months or so. So that's kind of brought us today. I think that's an incredible experience. Like you said, coming from Nebraska, I was sitting here in the boardroom in New York meeting with these worldwide biggest investors in the world. I'm sure that was just an incredible experience and probably a little intimidating, I would imagine at first. But how did that experience really open your eyes to what the possibilities were with Paradigm? Did it change your outlook on what you thought we could accomplish as a company? Over the past, I guess you started in 2010, every year I've just been like surprised at where we're at. If this is as good as it gets, that's amazing. But just I don't want to know that because I like to think that we can keep improving each year. Each year, it's been an incredible blessing. But kind of getting the levels we're at now, it's like really kind of eye-opening and kind of shocking the opportunities and people that we have helping us. So I would say from some of those experience and meeting some of people that have reached, you know, the pinnacle of the largest sector in the economy, you sort of realize that everyone's just a regular person. So when I was meeting Rob Capito, who's the president of all of BlackRock, who was one of the founders of the company, and I think he was chair of the investment committee that ended up making the investment in this, someone I never in a million years imagined sitting in the same room with. But he had mentioned how, you know, he grew up on the wrong side of the tracks and worked his way up. And you realize that it's just a matter of doing it. I mean, obviously, incredibly brilliant person, but there's no reason that anybody can't do these great things. If you just try really hard and have good ideas and act really ethically and build an amazing reputation and deliver value to your customers, there's no reason you can't do that. And if you think about their company, I think it started in something like 1982 or 1984, which I can remember 1984, you know, it wasn't that long ago. It was pretty young, but still to build a company that manages $10 trillion over 30 some years or whatever, it kind of puts in perspective. We think we're doing something pretty amazing, but we probably have a tremendously long runway because I think we've got some pretty talented people and tons of enthusiasm, a great culture. I think our product, which is patient outcomes and patient experiences, as I've gotten to see, I get to see literally hundreds of practices. Our core way of doing things is just so differentiated from the typical practice that I get to visit that doesn't join Paradigm or maybe he's not invited to join Paradigm. I think we have a tremendously long runway. And from what I've learned from working with these people, observing these people, like there's no reason that we shouldn't. We've got the talent, the speed, the innovation, the accountability, and the shared mindset to accomplish these things. So I'm sure we'll never be a $10 trillion company, but we've got decades of growth ahead of us. That's incredible. An incredible journey. What a great story. Always inspiring to hear you share that story. As you look back, along the journey to where we are today. And hopefully, as you said, there's a lot of runway ahead of us. But as you look backwards at that journey, what's been the most rewarding thing to you so far? It's seen people develop and have success and be really happy. And that's kind of why I talked so much about the story with Steve and Brittany is that's probably one of like the proudest things I've been a part of is seeing Steve go from dental assistant to graduating Mayo and now one of the most successful surgeons in our entire organization in just two years. For every Steve, there's tons of others, whether it's Daniel Yacoub or you or every surgeon we've worked with, just seeing them, you know, hopefully Paradigm is a situation or an environment where people can really thrive and have access to tools and capital and ideas and education that they just might not have come across otherwise. That's totally been the case for me. Again, getting to work with the people at BlackRock that's something that never should have happened for me, but it's given me the opportunity to accomplish so much more than I ever could have. So that's the most rewarding thing for me is seeing my partners 
do really, really well. well. And you certainly have built a culture that allows for that to happen. Every time we get together with any of the Paradigm Surgeons, I'm just amazed at the camaraderie and the culture that exists within Paradigm and people like Steve and Brittany and Daniel and all the others, incredible partners to work with and assets to the company. So done an incredible job building the company. Yeah, uh, I feel like I have, you know, 150 new best friends now. Yeah, I know, right? Again, as you look backwards, is there a specific challenge that you thought was really hard to overcome? But now that you look back, uh, having overcome it, we found that it was an especially rewarding challenge to have to fight. What's been challenging or maybe what's contributed to our success is I think it's been having a vision where you think the company can be or what we can accomplish and then thinking about what we need to do to accomplish it and then focusing on all the things that could derail it. And that probably goes back to, again to kind of my upbringing and, and being paranoid that anything could happen tomorrow. So I'm probably more focused on all the things that could disrupt the company more than necessary. But at the same time, it's complementary to building what we need to build. And I would say every step along the way, it's been having that vision and doing what I need to do to compromise to obtain the results. Not compromise from like a quality perspective or anything like that, but compromise with humans because it's such a human business, what we do in every single way down to its core, like we take care of people. I think the challenge has been, as I mentioned earlier, in talent, speed, innovation, accountability, and shared mindset are the five contributors to intangible value. And I think that the biggest challenge every step of the way and will probably always be in our business is developing a shared mindset. I think it takes some leadership and somebody to compromise. That can be difficult to do when you're foregoing rewards or just sacrificing all of your time or whatever the case may be. But I think you have to do what it takes to make sure the people around you are successful and happy. And then if you do that, you kind of get the results that you envisioned and you know, it turns out well for everybody. So it's staying focused on the vision and sacrificing what you need to to get there. That's the biggest challenge and getting everyone else to see it that way. And we have so many selfless people around us now that I think it's become this amazing culture of everybody wanting what's best for the business. And it turns out that's really, really self-serving if you think about it. I mean, it's not self-serving at all, but turns out it yields really great results for individuals if you're kind of able to think about it from that perspective, but you really need everybody thinking that way. In a long-term perspective, it's keeping your eye on the ball in the long-term. In the investment world and private equity, you see so many people that are focused on like a three to five-year perspective and leadership and leadership changes at those kinds of intervals and like hired guns that are there to get an investment outcome. To me, that's just sort of like a repulsive idea. So that's where I think we've also been different is I'd like to do this, you know, another 20 or 30 years if I can, thinking about it from a really long-term perspective and like, how can this be a great company 20 years from now that we're all super proud of? Because that's going to be more important than any financial reward. And if that is the case, we're all going to have done just fine. None of us are going to be hurting. I think that the long-term perspective, and you know, again, that kind of has gone back to Mayo Clinic a little bit too. They've definitely taken a very long-term approach to developing that business. We don't have to grow overnight. I mean, it's great to grow, but we needed to make sure we're doing things that are sustainable. And I think it's that perspective and those values that you obviously, you don't just espouse them, but you actually believe in them and, and help other people to see and believe in those values too, that makes you such a great leader and somebody who's quite easy to follow, actually. I appreciate your leadership and what you bring. 
to our company in that way. You and I have had quite a few conversations about different CEOs and companies that find their way onto McKinsey and articles and interviews that are given. So I want to share a couple of ideas from a few different CEOs and get your perspective on some things too that I think apply to you and the paradigm and are part of our story. So the first one is Ron Seish, who's the CEO and founder of Panera Bread. He gave an interview recently on McKinsey where he talks about the critical role that a CEO of any company plays, especially in innovation. And what he says is, this is quoting him, he says, I believe deeply that innovation is so powerfully and profoundly important to an organization that it requires the leadership and commitment of the CEO. If the CEO sees him or herself as simply an administrator, the company will fail. That CEO cannot prepare that company for where the future is going. That's the end of the quote. And it seems as we look at some of these great companies that they're really led by great innovators. And those who are good at innovating also seem to be great disruptors in their industry or maybe even across multiple industries. And I think you in particular have a special talent for innovating and have definitely been a disruptor, I think, for good in our industry in oral surgery and and maybe more in general in healthcare. But we've talked a little bit about some of your innovation, especially about your story with Loop, but you've also been involved in developing and innovating with Paragon and data collection, and now most recently with developing CareStack, a software platform that's really changing the way that we keep make and keep records and collect data in oral surgery. So I'm curious if you'll tell us more about the role that innovations played in your success and in the success of Paradigm and how you view the importance of continuing to innovate. I love that quote. Taking a step back, you mentioned that he's a founder. I'm sure he knows really well how the bread is made at Panera. That is something that I think is so, so important. And hopefully I'll grow into a statesman, custodian of a company, just great CEO that shepherds the value of a company over decades. But I think at my core, it's been more of like a founder mentality. And hopefully I, I don't mess up the rest of it too badly. But I think knowing what actually happened to me, at least until you can get a company to some very lofty point of success, I think you have to really know Coca-Cola can probably be shepherded at this point. They're probably not going to recreate the flavor for Coca-Cola. But for us, I think it's so important to know what's happening, just exactly how an abutment fits on an implant or how the angulation matters or the impact of zirconia versus acrylic on the long-term maintenance and health of the peri-implant tissues. You need to know all of the details that really impact the patient. I think I'm fortunate to be in my role and be an oral surgeon. I don't get to practice a whole lot at this point, but definitely enough. I've, over the years, have placed thousands and thousands of implants and still get to do a little bit. To me, that's really critical to know like what works, what doesn't work, how do we solve pain points, what would be innovations that would change the game for us as surgeons and for our patients. Now I'm kind of focused on workflows. Maybe I'm not too involved in like designing implants or things like that, or I'm probably not the person to go do a free flap today. But I think having all of that experience is really critical because I'm on the clinical side, but also a lot on the business side now. I think a lot of the way I think about things is from a workflow perspective. People like Scott Arsenault or Mark Jessen, that's probably not a point that I'm at where I'm going to figure out how to change the surface area on an implant or surface technology. I wish I could, but it's just a little bit outside of my wheelhouse at this point. And my value is probably more on 
how can we implement a digital workflow? Or if the scanner could be more accurate, if the algorithm could be better, or if we could use, you know, in our case, I guess, photogrammetry, then this has all these downstream implications that then helps our referral doctors and then allows us to create a more cost-effective product that our patients can have and afford. And then if we can implement a lab into it, you know, if we own a lab and we can scale that and we can have it focus specifically on these three items, we know that it can really provide a ton of value to us as surgeons, create a better product that the restorative doctors can be involved with and then a better restoration for the patient. That's where I'm really involved, where I'm kind of focused on innovation now. And then maybe a step back from there is how you organize all of it from a business perspective. So how your practice management system flows into your accounting system, how we make the jobs of our scheduling coordinators better, how can we create predictive algorithms that help them do a better job and have surgeons happier with their schedules and things. So digressing a bit there, but that's where I'm focused from an innovation perspective. I'm kind of a naturally sort of a big picture type of person from sort of a personality profile. So I love the work that I get to do now is trying to just move chess pieces around and, and figure out how to create a better platform. I think one of the challenges with innovation is implementing change across a large platform. So currently we're still, I guess, early on, but kind of in the middle of implementing the CareStack software, EMR, across the Paradigm platform. Obviously, it takes some time to get everybody transitioned and on board. So as you look at that from an innovation standpoint and implementing this great opportunity, how do you get others to buy into what you believe and can see is going to be a positive thing in the end? How do you get them to embrace that change and see the opportunity that you see? So I think change management, going back to shared mindset, creating enthusiasm amongst our doctors that, that most of the things they've been involved with have worked out really well. So we have, I think, a lot of capital built up from a credibility perspective. So that's really helpful. In terms of oral surgery softwares, the bar might not be super high. So I think we can clear that by a lot. Hopefully I'm, I'm kind of biased, but I think it just starts with the culture of people having good experience with this with Paradigm and how we've rolled it out, how we developed the team to support it. I think they've done a really good job. And even if there's been a hitch here or there, I think the surgeons have been really satisfied. Paradigm is a servant to them. We've got 10 people there making sure things are working. They know the effort is there and the uptime and everything about it has been like pretty amazing that the transition has been better than we ever expected. It's just continuing to hopefully build good experience after good experience and then get people talking about it. So, you know, surgeon leadership, obviously you've become an enormous part of our leadership, but developing more and more leaders, you know, a team of leaders, as Paul Gustafson would say, so that it's really a self-promoting organization and making sure people know there's going to be problems when you change something, but we're definitely building something better. The way things have gone so far with CareStack, it's better by the end of the day than where we were on our best day previously. So we've really been in pretty good shape there. I mean, that might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but not far off. I think where we have innovation opportunities and things that we can implement over time is using technology to promote change management. And you and I are both kind of addicted to reading McKinsey articles. It's like a free education, but they have a great article about technology and change management. It talks about that in business to consumer businesses, we're really good at using technology to create changes. And they mean influence customer habits. So whether it's a wearable device or an interface on a website that you can customize to your own liking or whatever, there's a lot of things that companies do to influence people to buy their product or create change. 
how can we do those types of things in a business? How can we use technology in a business to promote change or make change easier? And as I've seen it through, you know, the things that we've been implementing and the way we capture data very holistically, you know, our patient surveys, they don't feed our Google surveys or Google reviews. They're solely for internal purposes to understand what we do good or not good, which I love that sort of altruistic or just organic approach to how we're doing that. But we have about a 32% response rate to our surveys. Of those, I think 50% of them have written comments. I don't know if I've ever filled out a survey in my life buying something and certainly never written a comment. So for whatever reason, we have an incredibly engaged patient base, which is the result of the kinds of practices that we've been able to select and help develop. But we've got that arm. We have great patient feedback. Now we've got this holistic practice management system connected to our phone system. So, And then our data data ecosystem that captures everything and is hosted in the cloud, we're capturing data from absolutely every point we can, whether it's our payroll system or our EHR phone system or our patient surveys, patient trackers, you you name it. So we've got this ecosystem of data, and I think we can start providing it and already have to some degree, but start providing it based off of what our patients and what our referrals are telling us. If a scheduling coordinator, if we find that they've had, say, three two-star reviews in the past two weeks, and we know the encounters that those came from, and we have the transcription of the call, and we know what the sentiment score was and a number of other things about the call, I think we can start delivering information in a really non-threatening way, a low-resource way. We don't have to have a practice administrator or a doctor go yell at somebody or make them feel bad or whatever. We can prompt them automatically and say, like, hey, three bad reviews. You can't pass go until you go back and look at these and figure out how they could have been better. So that's one way that I think we are implementing a process and technology to help create change. And then if people want that change ability in their practice, I think that sounds pretty desirable to most people to have that kind of capability. They've got to move to our practice management system. So I think it's, you know, making sure that we have tools within there or having predictive algorithms that will help people, you know, make decisions and things. You know, as long as we have tools that will provide value, it's pretty easy to create change, particularly in the tool is around helping create change. I can put in a little plug for CareStack here too, because we just transitioned this last week. And, you know, of course, I think everybody going into something as big as changing your practice management software is going to be a little bit nervous. And we were, of course, nervous, anxious about it, but it, it really was over the three days of on-site training and transition really was very seamless. And Friday, we were back up to a full schedule of patients and running on time every day. And it's just, it's a really easy software to use, much more impactful than anything we'd used before as well. And so I'm excited for the future and getting everybody on board with CareStack and transitioned over and, and the incredible amount of data that that will give us the power to really make platform-wide impactful changes and decisions. It's great right now, but what excites me is about where it can be in two years or five years, moving towards more of an autonomous system. For me, it's just an absolute no-brainer to move to the cloud, like a true cloud-native system, because if you think artificial intelligence might play a role in the future of the world, then you kind of have to make that investment because you can't use AI on an on-premise system. You could have a virtual environment, but that's not cost-effective or commercial. No one's going to do that. It's just logical to me that you would do that and kind of bite the bullet, pave the way for your future. Well, speaking about the times that we live in, you know, there's a lot of instability in the world, society, geopolitical, economic, and turbulent times like the ones we're living in right now. There's also 
great opportunity for those that are willing to take some risk. And Lila Snyder, who's the CEO of Bose, recently said that this is her quote. She says, for people who want to get far in their careers, there's nothing more important than taking risks every single day that make you uncomfortable. And that's the end of her quote. But what's your view on risk and how do you choose the right risks to take and balance that with appropriate caution so that we're protecting what we built? And how do you find the balance between those two ideas? Probably where we might take the most risks is in terms of mergers and acquisitions. Not that we're taking risk there, it's just by nature, integration is a challenging thing. We've done a lot of mergers over the past four or five years. Literally every single one of them has been great. But I think it's making sure that you really understand the people that you're looking to partner with, making sure that, that there's a good cultural fit, that they're best in class in their markets. So that I feel like we've got a strong track record of. So I feel pretty comfortable with calculating risk. We have scorecards and objective data on how we calculate that or think about those types of acquisitions. But that's probably the area that's most highest risk, so to speak. But for us, mergers and acquisitions are not a business. And in private equity, that's kind of what they do is mergers and acquisitions. And if you have a hammer, everything kind of looks like a nail. I think people are very obsessed with EBITDA and not all EBITDA is the same for sure. So we're very, very cautious that we never do anything to compromise our brand. The other parts of the business from a de novo perspective or optimizing practices or investing in technology or investing in people, I think that's very low risk. We have such history with that now and such like amazing predictability with that, that I think that's an area that certainly helps us de-risk because of the certainty around that. I think the product that we are able to deliver in the form of patient care is second to none in the surgical specialties. I guess that's sort of how I've thought about the risk and how we de-risk it. You kind of alluded to this idea too in, in that comment, but obviously as you're looking at practices that want to join Paradigm, there's financial analysis, quality of earnings, a lot of other diligence that goes in to the process to make sure that financially or from a business perspective, it makes sense to bring that practice in. But we've also talked today about finding match quality or a good fit, shared mindset. How do you evaluate a practice from that perspective to determine if they'll really fit with the culture that we've built in Paradigm? Most of the people that have joined us are well-known through our network of doctors. That's probably one of the biggest things. And then I'm personally really involved in our business development, mergers and acquisitions. And I guess I've kind of developed a pretty good gut feel. I mean, again, there's a lot of objective markers that we look at, but being able to meet doctors, see a practice, you can definitely start to recognize patterns of what good looks like. I've been fortunate to get to see a lot of different practices, you know, either ones we've started or ones that have merged with us or ones that we haven't wanted to do. Through the merger and acquisition process, you kind of see the best and worst in people. Whenever you're dealing with money, it just really brings out the best in people. <laughs> We've had a much better job bringing out the worst in people. You really get to see how people prioritize things and how they're focused. Is it about the here and now or is it about the future? And I'm just not interested in individuals that are interested in like the onset of a deal. It's more like what can their practice become? I'd much rather have a practice that has no EBITDA that I have like tremendous confidence in and shared mindset with that can be inspired and wants to work hard and do something exceptional, wants to be the leader in their market. That's where, you know, practices that have joined us have grown 
I think something like 22% in the first 12 months. If you think about most people's practices, we have a pretty big end number now across 26 states. You know, it's one thing when we were doing it when we had one or two or three locations. And there's a lot of diversity in those practices, some of them new, some of them old, and not everyone grows 22%, but on average they do. So that means some people like you grow 80%. I think it's really validating to how we select people. Definitely use a lot of key data, but I would say me and the team. And a lot of that, I think, is the doctors that help identify these opportunities, kind of know what we're looking for. It's not someone that's looking to check out at all. It should be a deal almost that's not attractive to them at the moment. I mean, not unattractive, because I think we're pretty generous with our valuations, but something that can be tremendous for them if we all accomplish greatness over the next decade. I think that really speaks to why we've been able to establish the culture that we have with everyone giving of their time and knowledge so freely back to the company and to other partners in Paradigm. Why I think you and I both feel the same, that suddenly we have partners all over the country, right? Partners and friends, people that we can call and count on and get advice from anytime we need it. Speaking of that culture, it reminds me of something that Guillaume Danilo from Strauman said in the Paradigm podcast that you had with him as the guest. Speaking of culture, he said that culture's like an iceberg. What you see outside comes deeply from what is inside. How would you describe the culture of Paradigm and what do you think is built and continues to reinforce that culture, even as we continue to grow at an astonishing pace and are becoming quite a large company? I was talking to an HR consultant the other day and I said, I love culture. You know, I talk about it a lot, but I hear people just like throw it around. And it's something you can just say when you don't have something that you can prove. Like maybe you're not doing well in other areas and you can say like, oh, but we have a great culture. I'm a concrete person, I guess. I was kind of like struggling with that about how do you measure culture? And she said, well, it's easy. If you asked your employees, would they recommend that their family member work here? You'd probably have a really great culture if the answer is yes to that. And that's something that I think we've seen like a tremendous amount of in our organization is family members recruiting other family members and things. So many different instances, or maybe they have a child that wants to work in the office over the summer and wants to be an oral surgeon someday. And now we have a ton of oral surgeons who's Dr. Cross and, and Dr. Cross Sr. and Brian and Daniel is a great example, or Tim McConnell and his daughter, so on and so forth. And I'm sure 10 years from now, there'll be a flood of them. That's kind of a mark of a good culture and something that we're seeing that I think is because of everything under the water. That's not just the tip of the iceberg, but I guess the tip of our iceberg is that we have practices that are busier than any in the world. And in a referral-driven business, it's pretty hard to have that unless you're doing exceptional work. People aren't going to keep referring somewhere where it impacts their reputation. So I think it's everything that goes into that, whether it's the technology that we use implementing digital processes across the platform or how we use data and how we share it and how we're super transparent with it. I think there's you know a lot of transparency in our culture. You can look on our dashboards and see, probably find every detail about me uh, or my objective performance or, or you or anyone in the company. So I think it's all those things that sort of have contributed to our culture or are important to a culture all the things you do every day. Or there's been so many times where, you know, a contract, a purchase agreement or an employment agreement wasn't exactly what someone thought it was going to be or thought that it was, you know, maybe they didn't read it super carefully or their attorney maybe made an error. And there's just been countless times where I've had to make the decision that, no, we need to give that to the person. 
That might not be what the contract says, but I don't think that was their understanding or that maybe wasn't the spirit of it. So I think it's all those things that you do following principles rather than contracts, I think is so, so important. That's not pervasive at all in the business world as I've experienced. Typically, people say this is what the contract says or it's just business. And it's like, no, to me, it's not just business at all. Those are the things that help build your culture. It's the things that you do when no one else is looking that don't benefit you, but you kind of need to do it. It's what I think builds a culture. Again, that's something that you can see that you believe. You're not just saying those words. It's been my experience in working with you that that holds true when it comes time to make decisions that affect people that you also consider the person that's being affected too. So again, speaks to your great qualities as a leader. As we wrap up the podcast, it's been a lot of fun to talk to you today, but I have a couple last questions. In your opinion, what is Paradigm's greatest success thus far? And how do you see the future for not just Paradigm, but oral surgery, dentistry, medicine, healthcare in general? I think our greatest success has been our net promoter score since we started measuring it four years ago. It's like 90.5%, which is just an incredible net promoter score. Hopefully, Paradigm's contributed in some way directly, but it's not necessarily Paradigm's success. It's that we've managed to whether merge with great practices or start de novo practices where people seem to be doing their best work. And I'm sure there's been frustrations from time to time, but somehow, some way, we are delivering like a net promoter score that's like unheard of. That's the tip of the iceberg. Like you said, there's like a million things. There's a million compromises that have had to occur along the way or decisions that were made five years ago that ended up yielding results today or kept us in a good financial situation so that our balance sheet was really solid or so that we could invest in hiring more assistance. And when we've had tremendous staffing shortages and things and having to increase pay beyond the point that you'd feel comfortable with and things, there's just so many things that contribute to that ultimate patient experience. And then I would say the fact that our practices, like I said, have grown 22% in the first year. And practices aren't growing when people aren't satisfied or doing a good job. Those are the things that I'm probably most proud of. And there's been a lot of great outcomes for a lot of people, a lot of career development. I think people are growing outside of their comfort zones, whether it's becoming better leaders within their practices. All those are the things I think have been our biggest success. And then the shared mindset and the camaraderie and the friendships that we've been able to develop. Those have all the things that I think are most emblematic of our success. And then what I see for the future, I think that people that can work with other people just tend to be more successful, whether it's financially or the product they can develop. So consolidation is going to continue. And I think the interest rate environment that we're in and likely to be in for some time is really going to put a lot of pressure on models that are not really sound. So I think there's tremendous opportunity for people that have grown responsibly, have focused on the product and have been able to grow organically and not just bought a random group of things and hope to like think about it from a three-year perspective. So I think you'll see like a tremendous weeding out of people that have not done this for the most altruistic reasons. And it will result in, I think, better healthcare for the models that can persist or do sustain and grow. And all the while, I think there will be a trend towards more and more consolidation. And then I think data, to me, it's become not everything, but tremendously important. It's this non-biased language that we can communicate in. It's not offensive or doesn't have to hurt anyone's feelings. It's just the facts. And we can act on them and improve. 
And when we start to get more data points, more environments, it's so, so powerful. And then the other thing that's I think will become more important than ever is education. So using data to focus our education. So whether it's, you know, the Paradigm Academies and you know, you've been so crucial in, in leading those. And we've now put this enormous focus on this new education committee that you're leading. That's like the tip of the spear to make everything else happen. So I think it's using data to focus education and put a tremendous effort and spend into education. And a lot of that will be around technology and implementing new technologies or learning new clinical skills or workflows. Much of those, not necessarily how you make a better incision or drill a straighter, you know, osteotomy, but more about how you use the digital workflows and share files and make sure everything aligns and influences the pattern in which you take out teeth so you can get scans to stitch together better or you can go down a million tangents. But I think that it's the people that can achieve scale and be able to have operating leverage in their investments, invest in technology and training so that they can have a better product than people that don't, than people that have not been able to work really well with other people to kind of stand on the shoulders of giants, hopefully. That's a great perspective. Well, I know that you could send out an email to all of the surgeons and team members, everybody that works for Paradigm and say whatever you wanted to to them. But in this format, what's your best advice and what is it that you'd like to say to all of the people who are part of Paradigm? First is just that I'm so grateful to be doing what I'm doing. And, and that's because of so, so many people across the organization. You know, really every employee has contributed tremendously to that. I guess first, thank you. And then Next would just be, you know, stay focused on the future, coming to work each day and trying to do something better. And it's really hard, especially in challenging times. And I could see that the next couple of years could be economically challenging. Hopefully not, but we don't really see any indication of that right now, but it does sort of concern me. So I think focusing on what we can do, what we can control, what we can make better which is basically just the patient in front of you. So it's whether maybe you can give a little bit better instructions or maybe you can smile when you see them. Just trying to focus on everything that you do to do a little bit better job. It's certainly what I try to do. I'm probably not very good at it, but that would be my advice for everybody is do what we do well. There's a lot of great things with technology and exciting, really cool things to talk about. But I think at the end of the day, I think it's just trying harder to do a little bit better job going in and seeing the patient that's in pain, even though you might not really need to, but one out of a thousand, maybe something really serious. So it's just kind of going the extra mile, I think, at every opportunity. I mean, not burning yourself out, obviously. When you have that kind of approach to things, the rewards tend to be pretty great and you can lead a pretty great lifestyle and go on a couple of nice vacations. That would be my advice to everyone. Well, that's great advice. Well, David, it's been fun to visit with you today and Always enjoy hearing your story and your perspective on things and hope that everyone who listens to the podcast appreciates where you've come from in your life and what you've built and created and how blessed we all are to be a part of that with you and grateful for your leadership and your friendship and to be partnered with you on this great adventure that we're on together. Well, thank you, Mike. I'm so inspired by you and I learn so much every time we talk. So we'll have to do this again sometime. It'll be a lot of fun. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks. You've been listening to The Paradigm Concept, brought to you by Paradigm Oral Health, an organization led and owned by surgeons passionate about shaping the future of our specialty and ensuring the needs of the patient come first. Learn more and subscribe to the show at ParadigmHealth.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on The Paradigm Concept. Mm -hmm.